Hey, this is Josh. I just wanted to say that I am pretty freaked out. I am extremely excited to finally have this Kickstarter campaign launched. This is a 30-day journey, and I would love, love, love for you to take five minutes to watch the video that we put together explaining why the invitation as a nonprofit is so important. You can find your way to that Kickstarter campaign by going to the invitationpodcast.org. There should be a pop-up that will lead you through a link to the Kickstarter. This is an all-or-nothing campaign that is right. The way this Kickstarter works is that we have to hit our goal of $27,000 or we get none of the money at all. This is a little social experiment to get you all excited and on board to help spread the word, encouraging all of your people to check out the invitation. And we do need your help rather soon. Your donation sends a message to others that the invitation is valuable and worth their time and attention to. Thanks for your help. Hello, this is Josh Banner with The Invitation. In the wake of our recent midterm elections, does anybody here want to get down and dirty with some more political conversation? Well, I am so very delighted to offer you this conversation with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove because what may seem like at first a political conversation, if you listen deeply to this, it turns out that Jonathan and I are having a deeply spiritual conversation. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove is for us a model of a disciple of Christ whose spiritual practices have moved his inner being out into the neighborhood. Before you balk and wonder why in the world I'm mixing spiritual formation with politics, consider again our mandate to love God with our whole selves, our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I invite you to recall how we ended our summer retreat with strength spirituality, to love God with our muchness. And that focus question of strength spirituality is how can the love and truth of Jesus become alive in my daily life? I'm going to borrow here from another more recent conversation I had with the author David Dark. David would describe Jonathan as someone who possesses what he calls a deep attentiveness for the sake of a righteous culture. So let's bring this together a strength spirituality, this means that I am deeply attentive to Jesus' love and truth, attentive to the person of Jesus so thoroughly that his life then works itself in and through and out of me. This is ultimately an aliveness, an attentiveness to a righteousness, a justice here on this earth. In this episode, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove speaks to our prayer as begging. Prayer is begging. Uh, 
most white folks don't know how to beg. Mm. Begging is a space of deep longing. That's why I, th- I think begging, the practice of begging, uh, really makes clear why the Bible talks about fasting and praying. Yeah. Right? This uh, investing our whole body, our whole self, mm. whole soul into hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is justice. Mm. Just the way that he talks about begging, the pathos in his gut, his intentionality sounds like a person who is attentively asking God to do justice on this earth, to establish a righteous culture. Begging as hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is justice. You may still be wondering about the relationship between justice and spiritual formation. The Jesuits have modeled for us what has been described by some as contemplation and action, to be an activist who is nurtured and sustained by contemplative prayer. This is to bring contemplative prayer to our social actions, again to a righteous culture. When Jesus invites us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, He is inviting us into His righteous perfection, a just, whole, and holy maturity. This is what we pray, what we beg for. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will, His kingdom working in and through me, his kingdom in me so that I can join him in establishing his kingdom on earth. So before you tune out and let politics make you too uncomfortable here, consider that politics in its deepest form is an attentiveness to the polis, that is Greek for the city, to the way that we function together as neighbors. You may recall here in the second part of the great commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves. What we're saying here is that our private practice of contemplative prayer has political ramifications. Who I am in my solitude eventually will affect my neighbor. In a recent New York Times piece written by pastor and author Tim Keller, he says, to not be political is to be political. And what's even more interesting is that I was directed to Keller's New York Times piece by some friends who are concerned that Keller's politics are too insulated. They argue that Pastor Keller is not able to speak appropriately to the injustice of racism because he has only been serving affluent white people. At first blush, with these names, these accusations and tensions, you might be saying, This is exactly why we should not mix politics with religion. It's just too messy, too liable to offend. Our country may not be in the midst of a civil war fought with guns and armies, yet we are in the midst of an extremely divided ideological, psychological, and emotional strife. Whatever your political leanings, it's fair to say that we are all experiencing a collective trauma. 
The recent midterm elections were difficult for me, all in the midst of more and more public shootings. Twelve killed in Thousand Oaks, California. Eleven killed in a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Two killed in a grocery store in Kentucky. The number of shootings in America this year has risen above 300. More and more people are publicly saying, no thanks for your thoughts and prayers. I need your legislation. I need your action. In keeping with the invitation, the answer to our suffering is no longer polite avoidance. We cannot flee these political conversations. It's not that we cannot offer our neighbors our thoughts and prayers. It's that our thoughts and prayers need to be deeper and of more substance. We need to engage thoughts and prayers that transform our strength spirituality. Thoughts and prayers that make us more like Jesus in this world. Today. Right now. To establish peace and justice here on this earth. So, in this conversation with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, this is a wild one. And by wild, I mean that if you're listening closely, and if you allow Jonathan to become a conversation partner, you'll be led into the wild, into a wilderness. Yes, this sacred conversation with Jonathan will provoke you politically. In keeping with the spirituality of the invitation, let's pause to consider, is that okay for you? Is that okay for you to be provoked in a conversation? Can you allow here the Spirit to lead you deeper into the wilderness of our current political strife in America? Can the invitation help you create this kind of time and space for God? A time and space that includes your strength spirituality, the muchness of your political self. And if you balk at this, if you recoil here, know that is completely fine. The invitation still needs to be a safe place for you. We need to be careful as we enter this wilderness. And that is why I'm thankful for Jonathan as a trustworthy wilderness guide. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove offers us access to the desert wilderness spirituality of our modern-day context. As an undergraduate student, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove absorbed the wisdom of the desert studying with Christopher Hall at Eastern University in Philadelphia. The wisdom of the desert, as Chris Hall explains in conversation number six, episode 16, is that the wilderness, the wildness of the desert, is a learning space. While we cannot force or fake our way to God, we can put our bodies in places where the Spirit is more likely to get at us. Jonathan then practiced this desert wisdom by placing his body in the literal desert of Iraq. It was there in the Iraqi desert that Jonathan especially experienced the forgiveness and kindness of the Sunni Muslims of Rutba, Iraq. 
In 2003, he and his wife, Leah, founded the Rutba House in Durham, North Carolina. Named after the Iraqi town, Rutba is a residential community that welcomes the formerly homeless to share food, prayer, and fellowship. Jonathan has studied and written generously on new monasticism. He and Eastern classmate Shane Claiborne compiled the worship text, Common Prayer, a Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals. Jonathan has attended to the formation of his inner life, especially in the way the Rutba community practices the Benedictine rule. Today, Jonathan is an associate minister at the historically black St. John's Missionary Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina, while he is also very active with Reverend William Barber and his organization, Repairers of the Breach, in an effort to continue the work of Dr. Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign. Their mission reads, A national call for moral revival is uniting tens of thousands of people across the country to challenge the evils of systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, ecological devastation, and the nation's distorted morality. Jonathan spends the bulk of the first half of this conversation unpacking what he has identified as slaveholder religion that is especially rearing its head in our Christian witness today. Jonathan explains that in the wake of the first reconstruction of America after the abolition of slavery, the redemption movement of Southern churches roused their biblical and theological tradition to further interpret their views of white supremacy. Even through the second reconstruction of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, this redemption, white is right brand of American Christianity, continues to persist today even in unexpected northern cities, in places and in people who continue a race politics even if they're not explicitly wearing a clan hood. We especially need Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove today to translate for us the oppression of white privilege, an oppression that whites cannot see precisely because of their privilege. And I fully recognize that Jonathan has the authority to speak to us this way because he exchanged the wisdom of the Iraqi desert for the desert experience of our systemic racism. He has put his body in the wilderness of the black experience in America. He is for us an oak planted deep in the soil of this wasteland. As you listen and engage this conversation, I pray you come with a deep attentiveness that you may have eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. So here we are. Here we are. So um, you uh, were at Eastern and you studied, what did you study at Eastern? Oh, well, I was uh, an undergrad at Eastern, yeah. so I studied everything okay. um, and majored in philosophy because that was a chance to read everything. Yeah, and, uh, and then that was directly onto Duke then? Yeah, so we were at Eastern back um, when Chris Hall was teaching there, mm -hmm. and 
teaching us the wisdom of the desert and that kind of stuff. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really formative uh, for me, especially after 9-11 mm-hmm. when um, it seemed like the uh, spirit of the air was uh, really uh, pushing Christians toward nationalism and mm-hmm. uh, support for what seemed like an unjust war. And so um, so we ended up uh, leaving school and going to the desert. <laughs> we, we went to Iraq. That's right. Uh, okay. when, when the United States was bombing Baghdad mm-hmm. and had a, uh, as the uh, Amas and Abbas in the uh, fourth century discovered, uh, God is in the desert. And uh, we had a similar experience. Uh, but God reached out to us through um, people at a place called Rutba, mm-hmm. who saved our friends' lives when they were in a car accident. So so we came back to the United States from uh, that experience, and Eastern was gracious enough to graduate us as a, <laughs> a alumni of that institution. And then we started a hospitality house called Rutba House in Durham, North Carolina, which is where we still are. So. Mm-hmm. That's where we've been for the last 15 years. So Rootba is the house is named after named after the town, the town. that extended hospitality to us uh, when uh, when the people there were supposed to be our enemy. Mm-hmm. The doctor when we when the doctor uh, saw our three friends who were really seriously injured in that car accident, he said, three days ago, your country bombed our hospital, mm-hmm. but we'll take care of you." <laughs> They end up being more uh, like Jesus than yeah. the people that claim to follow Jesus. Well, that's the Good Samaritan story, right? Right. The person who's supposed to be your enemy picks you up off the side of the road and saves your life. Yeah. It happened to us. So wow. Jesus says, go and do likewise at the end of that story. Yeah. And we felt like Jesus was talking to us. Wow. You know? The people I was struck by in the Middle East, um, I was actually just reminded of them because uh, when we when we came out of Baghdad, we went to a interfaith worship service that was largely organized by Coptic Christians in Amman mm. and uh, they uh, some of the leaders of the Coptic church asked us uh, about our experience because we had just come out of Rupa the day before mm. and uh, one of them said I remember one of these you know priests said um, what are what are pastors in the United States saying about this war mm. and I said well Part of the reason why we felt like we needed to come here is a lot of people say, you know, if the president and the Congress think that this is a war, we should support it. And he said, um, but haven't they read their Bibles? Mm. Wow. Uh, I thought about that when they refused to meet with Mike Pence mm. last weekend. Mm. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of Christianity uh, for which our slaveholder religion in the United States just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like it's, mm. it's, um, mm. it's confusing. How, like, yeah. like people genuinely ask, how could you read the Bible and yeah. say, you know, Jesus says the first shall be last. And you say America first and God blesses that. Like mm-hmm. it's just a confusing thing. So you were talking earlier, about MLK describing slavery as our original sin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as you've done this research on your new book that's coming out, mm. can you talk some more about those 
kind of the origin story mm-hmm. uh, for America and mm-hmm. this darkness. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think the um, the story that America likes to tell about itself, especially in the 20th century, was, you know, one nation under God. This is a sort of beacon of both democracy and Christianity. Um, what I don't think uh, we're honest about in that story is the fact that the Christianity that uh, fits so well with our, you know, nationalistic pride is a Christianity that developed uh, among the slaveholders on plantations, right? So, um, um, and interestingly, you know, there were always two Christianities, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The development of the theology of slaveholder religion is a response to the theology of the abolition uh, movement, which is a moral movement, which has framed itself in terms of scripture, right? Mm-hmm. If if God created us all in God's image, then uh, it's unimaginable that some of us should enslave others, should own mm-hmm. other people's bodies. That's what the abolitionists were saying. Um, and, you know, it was a clear enough point. Um, uh, if you go back and read, you know, the arguments, the the uh, defenders of the slaveholders actually quote more scripture because they're just, you know, going front to back, trying every convoluted argument they can mm-hmm. to to make the case that um, that slavery is justifiable. Um, but, you know, the abolitionists had a good case. So the development of the theology and the uh, hermeneutic that makes um, the justification of slavery uh, really central to um, faith for uh, in the beginning for people in the South that that all happens uh, in the mid nineteenth century, uh, but after the Civil War during the Reconstruction, uh, when you know the federal government says you know the Thirteenth Amendment slavery is abolished, mm-hmm. and uh, states have to affirm that to reenter the Union. Um, None of those preachers give up that theology, mm. right? Mm. No, none of those churches stop teaching the Bible that mm-hmm. way. So the movement to overthrow Reconstruction, what historians call the redemption movement, is an explicitly theological move, movement because mm. it's about um, what what they framed as a moral movement mm. to um, to restore the good order of the South that they always believed God had blessed. Mm. And when that is successful uh, after the um, um, concession of um, President Hayes in 1877, um, there's a white supremacy campaign that's not just about the South mm. that actually takes over the federal government, right? 1896 Supreme Court decision, separate versus equal, or mm. separate but equal, Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, that's a national case, mm. right? That's national law. And so segregation really becomes a fundamental American mm. uh idea, and more than that, white power, right? So even where segregation doesn't have to be enforced by the law, the the blessing of white rule, white power mm-hmm. as, um, as the American ideal mm-hmm. really becomes central to mm-hmm. uh, the America that in the 20th century says, in God we trust. Mm-hmm. And so there's this deep connection between the slaveholder religion that emerges on the plantation mm-hmm. and the good news of America that gets spread throughout the world after World War II. Imperialism, gospel. Yeah. 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 Empire. Imperialism mm-hmm. and, a, and a Christian faith 
that is both very personalistic in its reading of the scripture, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about you and your relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And at the same time says, but this form of government, of course, makes that mm -hmm. kind of uh, faith mm -hmm. uh, possible. So, so we get today the celebration of quote unquote religious liberty, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And by religious liberty, the people who say that mean almost exactly the opposite of what Roger Williams and John Leland and others who, you know, put that in the Constitution meant by it. Mm. Um, but they, um, they, they celebrate uh, the fact that this government uh, endorses this particular kind of mm. Christianity, what I'm calling slaveholder religion, because I think it kind of clarifies the, yeah. uh, the choice that we have to make. Mm. And you mentioned earlier as well, what I, what I hear you saying is there's kind of an American invention because they're pushing back against mm -hmm. abolitionists. Mm -hmm. But you you did tie this to Europe and the papal bull. I think you said 1453. And there's, a, there's, there's, yeah. you think about the Spanish conquest mm -hmm. and that version mm -hmm. of imperialism, mm -hmm. what kind of similarities, differences would you say are the American invention of this kind of slaveholder? Yeah. Well, I mean, the practice of, race-based slavery and the uh, philosophy, you know, mm -hmm. which justified it was obviously, you know, rooted in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, what happened here in the United States is um, an economy was established based on okay. that and that alone, yeah. right? Yeah. So what we have is an economy where the land was stolen and the labor was stolen okay. from Native people and from black and slave people, and uh, the white people um, benefited from that economically. Mm -hmm. uh, the system was built on that, and, you know, after 250 years of slavery and 100 years of Jim Crow, there was a sort of legal mm -hmm. decision that, uh, that actually equal protection under the law uh, is going to be uh, defended by our courts for the first time in the history and uh, there's an, immediately a pushback against that and a pushback, uh, you know, the idea that, um, you know, that there should be any sort of reparations or mm -hmm. affirmative action for those people who for, you know, 350, 400 years have mm -hmm. been uh, consigned to this, um, you know, exploitative position within the system. Uh, so I think that's the unique piece of the American story that... Um, that the whole system was built, the whole plantation system yeah. was built on the the theological lie uh, of racial inferiority. Uh, it's it's a I, I think Christians have to grapple with the fact that it's an affront to God, mm -hmm. right? That what we said was that God um, God who chose to make people in God's image mm. actually made some people more like God than others. Mm. Um, well, if you've gotten that wrong, you get a lot about God wrong. Yeah. You know, I think that's, I think that's the heart of it theologically. Mm. So we have a, a, a brand of capitalism, mer mercantilism that is starting from scratch and it's it's built completely on the backs of black people 
And so then that builds. And the native people. And the native people, of course. Thank you. The the whole culture and its roots Mm -hmm. is exploitation. That's a a lot to swallow. (laughs) It is. Uh, And I think overwhelming uh, if that were the only story we have. Mm. The other story we have that runs parallel Mm. is that this miracle Mm. that in the midst of that, these people who had been forcibly removed from Africa uh, received and uh, built a, a gospel Right, that that understood that the God who brought Israel out of Egypt yeah. was bringing them out of slavery, and that that is good news for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, the radical love ethic of that liberative black church tradition that said, you know, even when Richard Allen walks out of the church in Philadelphia, you know, and founds the AME Church, um, his first you know declaration is not we're establishing a black church. Mm-hmm. It's that we're establishing a church for everyone. Mm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, the, the incredible gift is that there have been people who have gotten the gospel all along. Mm. And uh, their witness is here for us to receive. And they, their institutions and their imagination of what, mm. you know, church should be and what society could be, you know, what politically we could achieve. And I think in terms of our spiritual formation, and what a relationship with God can look like, yeah. right? The, the the formation practices that we so desperately need are there mm-hmm. in this liberative, prophetic, mm-hmm. black church tradition, which has never just been black. It's mm-hmm. always it's always been open to mm-hmm. black led, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, abolition movement is white folks, black folks working mm-hmm. together. The civil rights movement is you know. Christian folk and Jewish folk, black folk and white folk and Latino folks. And, mm-hmm. you know, by the time you get the Poor People's Campaign in 1967, 68, there's, you know, 50 groups that are organizing about every disenfranchised and oppressed segment of society, mm-hmm. all realizing together that, you know, we we are the... Uh, We are what God is using to call this nation to what it said it wanted to be, right? And that's the yeah. that's the incredible thing yeah. about yeah. the movement to me, that the people who were rejected have actually come back in love. Mm. Now you have to yell, you have to speak out, otherwise you won't be heard, but in love, have come back and said, no, we're going to show you how what you promised could actually be possible. Mm. That's what the psalm says, (laughs) Psalm 118. Mm. The stone that the builders rejected Mm -hmm. has become the chief cornerstone, Mm -hmm. and it is marvelous in our eyes. And that's when the psalmist can sing, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Mm. You can't just sing and clap, you know, because the sun rose up or something. Mm. You know, look mm. at the mountains mm. and say, isn't it beautiful? I mean, it is beautiful, but that's not what that psalm was about. Mm. That psalm was a direct response 
to God's plan to save the world through the rejected stones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it. Yeah. That's what makes the psalmist shout. Mm -hmm. So, my Lord, <laughs> to be in a black church in the South with white folks and black folks and Latino folks and Jewish folks and gay folks and straight folks and and he, and hear all of them shout at that good news. That's that you're describing your church. That's home, brother, right yeah. there. That's home. <laughs> That's where I want to be. That's the home I want for everybody. Yeah. That's joy. Mm. Joy unspeakable. Mm. Yes, I've been in a prison. Uh, this has been uh, three years now. Oh, yeah. Uh, since That's January. another place where church is happening. <laughs> exactly. Inside it, America's prison. It's become my spiritual my, my deepest spiritual community. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're talking about God's revealing himself through the oppressed, through mm. the very people that we've hurt. Um, uh, yeah. That first Corinthians one uh, twenty seven, you've chosen the weak things of the world mm -hmm. to shame that which is strong and the foolish things to shame that which is wise. It's, I, I just feel like I'm barely getting to understand that, mm. that mm. he speaks through these, Men, yeah, uh, and in many ways, my experience is like like your experience in the in the desert, um, where I have Muslims and uh, I have some Buddhists that come, and mm -hmm. and it was uh, one of the Muslims uh, telling his story growing mm -hmm. up in Mississippi, mm -hmm. and he just kept saying this kind of litany of his discoveries of race mm -hmm. as a kid. His mama mm -hmm. was a cleaning lady at a wealthy white mm -hmm. family's home and he would go spend the night over there and he just started realizing wait this is mm -hmm. something going on here and he just Latorius just kept saying I'm I'm frustrated mm. but I'm not gonna act out mm. and then he would tell a little bit more and he'd say I'm frustrated mm. but I'm not gonna act mm. out I was one of the most holy experiences I've had mm. in the last year just shaking with this something that I couldn't see otherwise so um so you're articulating some uh, history in the political and the theological underpinnings of that. And I'm, my interest is going back to the formational practices for mm -hmm. the podcast, how to invite people to go back to the beginning mm -hmm. of where we're being shaped. Um, but I wanted to try out a thought that I've, I've talked with Chris Hall about, and uh, I, I kind of jumped and sprung it on him. <laughs> so he, I don't think he knew. What to do? I'm having to get ready to put together my final project for my um, doctoral program, and mm -hmm. one of my ideas is doing something with the, these incarcerated men and race. Mm -hmm. And as I read Michelle Alexander and tiptoe into James Baldwin, um, and I, as a spiritual uh, director, mm -hmm. I, it's really hard for me to think that America has ever believed in the gospel as transformation. Mm. And so Baldwin would say, um, you know, the story of America is a story of a black man. It's not, 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 it's not a pretty story. Mm -hmm. And I, I would add that that's the incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Our story is about who we've put in prison. Mm -hmm. And so we look at the stats, 25% of the world's prison population, 40% of that being African-American mm -hmm. males. So uh, Chris, Chris was trying to be optimistic, you know, course there's people in the church that believe in transformation mm. <laughs> let's not get too heavy and that was a good correction you know i don't want to be self-righteous about this i want to name it and mm. i think that's what i i sensed with you earlier and what you're saying now naming it has the church ever believed 
and transformation, the white church. Can people change? Well, you're asking a deeply important question. You're talking about people on two levels too, right? Can people change? Yeah. We, we have to tell those stories, right? Mm. We have to tell the story of the Grimke sisters who grew up on the plantation outside of Charleston, right? Mama and Daddy taught them their Bible and taught them that they were the rightful owners and that they would inherit these people uh, who their family enslaved. Um, they saw the moral contradiction of that, left, left Mama and Daddy's house and joined the abolition movement. Um, so people can can change and can be uh, transformed by relocating from a place of so-called privilege. Mm. We got to interrogate that privilege. Mm. That's what Vincent Harding used to ask us all the time. What privilege is it really mm. to be the heir of generations of genocide and abuse? Mm. So, you know, we got to interrogate that privilege, but that's part of that. That's part of the process of being born again, right? These sisters realize it's not a privilege; like it's not worth your soul to inherit daddy's wealth, and so uh, they're willing to walk away from it and find when they do that there is a community that's ready to welcome them and to help them become something new. So people change. Can institutions change? That's that's a somewhat different question in terms of the church and mm -hmm. in terms of the institutions of this country, mm -hmm. um, which are, you know, still largely controlled by people who think themselves to be Christian. Mm -hmm. um, I think the future of the American project depends on whether they can change. Mm -hmm. And because I love people mm -hmm. in this place and because I uh, love this country, I pray that it can change. Mm. If it doesn't change, it can't last. That's what I know. Yeah. Right? Um, that's what I know from reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. You know, if you read the Bible honestly, the one thing you know for sure is that injustice can't live forever. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, uh, the kingdoms of this world can do what they want to as long as they're allowed to, but, mm -hmm. you know, at some point, some other nation rises up to crush them uh, or God judges them or that's the same thing. You know, how, however that works out, like there, there, there are consequences. And so I think even within my own lifetime, it's possible that America, as it has existed, could end. Like we could live through the end of America. That's not the end of the world, right? <laughs> like that's happened before. Yeah. Um, and I think the bigger question is, uh, can people who have, who do have the privilege mm -hmm. of knowing the good news, that there's another way of knowing the difference between the Christianity of the slaveholder and the Christianity of Christ, mm -hmm. uh, can those folks hold up an alternative that people can see and mm -hmm. choose and participate in. And whatever happens, will that, mm -hmm. you know, lead us to 
the future of a different America or of a different, uh, you know, of a church that looks different? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the big question. Yeah. And um, that's what I pray for every day. Yeah. That God makes it possible for people and institutions and societies to be transformed from what is, which is very ugly, if you look at it honestly, to uh, what is possible. Mm. And what we, you know, have seen. Mm. There are real moments when we have uh, chosen to, to change. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a real concrete example here. I'm going in a few weeks to Americus, Georgia, where the Koinonia Farm, interracial community, black folks and white folks living and working together in the 1940s, which was illegal, not just, you know, contrary to normal practice, but there were laws mm -hmm. against sitting down to eat together in the middle of the day. Uh, those folks, you know, who endured great trials and tribulations at the hand of the KKK and the local business leaders and others, um, they were put out of the Baptist and the Methodist church in town mm -hmm. in the 1960s for simply showing up as an interracial group. <laughs> like blocked at the door, deacons walked them out and said, you are not welcome here. This is our church. <laughs> Clarence Jordan said to them, oh, I'm sorry, I thought it was God's church. <laughs> they said, it, they said, well, same difference. We're, we're, God put us in charge of Wow. And Jordan said, well, about everything now is integrated except the churches and the jails, and I have some hope for the jails. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, but those two churches are hosting the 75th anniversary of Koinonia Farm in just a few weeks, wow. and we're going to be there, black folks, white folks, brown folks, not for just a sort of, you know, celebration of, uh, of a kind of, you know, bland multiculturalism that you sometimes get at a Martin Luther King holiday, you know, we can all be together and then go back to doing the same thing. We're going to be there to talk about a moral witness in this moment, mm. to talk about a poor people's campaign mm. in 2018, mm. to talk about the new sanctuary movement and how mm. churches are, you know, mm. in a position and called to uh, welcome, provide shelter and protection to our uh, undocumented sisters and brothers who are, who are, who are the target of the current white nationalism? Mm -hmm. You know that's the that's the, the the key policy aim of white nationalism right now is to deport as many brown people as possible. That's the pushback against the blackening and browning of the demographic, and um, and churches are stepping up to say we'll we'll offer sanctuary to somebody mm -hmm. who has no other choice. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a, that's a key place mm -hmm. for the church to be right now to learn what it means to be church, mm -hmm. right? To 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 say that our evangelical the, the brother who is in sanctuary with us in Durham, mm -hmm. Pastor Jose is his name. The brother is as evangelical as you get. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, he's evangelical to the core. Mm -hmm. He goes out or before he was in sanctuary, he went out, you know, street preaching, mm -hmm. just, tr you know, trying one by one to bring him in. Cause I mean, that's his story. He was, he was caught up in 
alcoholism as a young man, and he understands that, you know, chasing after the things of this world almost ruined his life, almost tore up his family. The Lord turned him around. He's been sober for 20 years, and, mm-hmm. and well, you know, he's got the zeal of a convert and the passion of the best evangelicals. Now, this president and this administration that talks so much about how they love the evangelicals are trying to deport this evangelical Uh, pastor to El Salvador. He hasn't been there in 32 years. You know, the Republican and Democratic administrations, one after another, have, you know, extended, you know, his uh, uh, stay of removal so that he could be here. And now the so-called champions of evangelicals are are attacking this evangelical and his family. And where's the church, right? Well, there's the church that's offering him sanctuary, which is not just the congregation I'm part of, but a coalition of congregations. And then there's the church that says either those folks ought to be gone or, well, that's not our place, right? Mm-hmm. Both of those responses, I mm-hmm. think, are, mm-hmm. are the influence of slaveholder religion mm-hmm. on Christianity in America. To think either that we bless mm-hmm. that kind of violence, mm-hmm. anti-family policy, or to think, well, it's not our place to mm-hmm. step in and say something. Uh, both of those, I think, mm-hmm. are vestiges of mm-hmm. slaveholder religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, that's fantastic. So, so the uh, the 75th is a, is a way to re-energize and re-mobilize, regroup and redirect. It's yeah. not just some pat on the back and uh, to inspire the next steps that's yeah. right yeah because the, the pattern i mean the the pattern in american history is a pattern of expansion of democracy mm-hmm. and reaction against that mm-hmm. right if, if the reconstruction era is an expansion mm-hmm. of democracy in this country the redemption movement is a white supremacist reaction against that civil rights movement is an expansion of democracy the southern strategy mm-hmm. and the and the uh, you know law and order mm-hmm. uh, policies of Nixon and those who followed, which is what gave us mass incarceration, all of that is a reaction against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we're, uh, my dear brother William Barber has uh, taught me, taught us that we are in the midst of the the birthing of a third reconstruction in this country, right? Yeah. yeah. The 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 new demographic uh, of of Black folks and Latino folks and, you know, quite a few progressive white folks who are willing to vote together uh, made it possible for this country to have its first African-American president, Mm. right? I'm not talking about him and his policies. I'm talking about the the demographic that made that possible. That was revolutionary in terms of the potential for a shift of power in this country. And because it was, there was a backlash against it. You know, you get your... Tea Party, your Tea Evangelicals, your, uh, you know, all of these folks, the birthers, the folks who, who, who mobilized, you know, not just to give a kind of typical, you know, conservative versus liberal response yeah. to these policies, but who, I mean, I think Franklin Graham is an example of how religion became a way of kind of upping the ante in that. Because what he said was, progressives are atheists, mm-hmm. right? And he toured the country 
under the auspices of the Billy Graham Evangelist Association in 2016 to hold prayer rallies in every capital, supposedly nonpartisan prayer rallies, but they were all about um, taking our country back for God. Mm -hmm. And it was all a blessing mm -hmm. of the Make America Great Again kind of uh, rhetoric that uh, that Trump was championing. <coughs> nationalism. And yeah. that had everything to do with the pushback mm -hmm. against a black president, mm -hmm. right? So, so we're in this moment where uh, I think seeing clearly how our faith has been and is being hijacked mm. to uh, defend white supremacy mm. is incredibly mm. crucial because that's been there in every period. But part of the reason why I think this third reconstruction is, is so crucial is white supremacy continued after the first and the second reconstruction because white people were the majority. Mm. And white people are not the majority in the kindergarten that my children have gone to. Yeah. Right? I've watched them come through. <coughs> They're not the majority. So, so, the, so this is where the question of whether America is possible really comes up. Can, we can no longer sustain the illusion of democracy mm. alongside white supremacy, given the demographics. Mm -hmm. And um, that's why some people who want to hold on to power are fighting very hard. But as Reverend Barber often says, a dying mule kicks the hardest. So, you know, the, the prophetic tradition says, hold on now just a little bit longer and we're going to see a new day. And that's what uh, that's what my hope is. The coalition of people who are coming together across so many historic lines of division. Uh, those, those people are uh, incredibly encouraging to me. And in some ways, I think they embody the kind of formation that so many people who've imagined ourselves to be white, we need. So again, with the question on formation, mm -hmm. I really do think that the, the formation of, of, of people who are calling themselves woke these days, you know, we got a lot of folks who are woke. That's a good, mm -hmm. that's good. You know, being woke is realizing that you've been blind which really puts us right there with uh, Saul on the road to Damascus, right? The Lord has said, why are you persecuting me? Mm. And the, the light of that truth is blinding. And I think, I think it's, a, it's an error of whiteness to think that you can move from blindness, right, to uh, knowing what the answer is. Yeah. Uh, no, I think we're in a period of needing deep formation, Right. People who, who have been so blind need to be formed in the practices of people who know how to hunger and thirst for justice. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. that's the prophetic black church in America. That's our you know, Latino sisters and brothers who've been uh, fighting for uh, a dream here and who have developed some real courage in that, in that process. And I think... Uh, that's why this Poor People's Campaign is, uh, for me, a deeply spiritual movement. It's an invitation to Christians to come and learn how to be Christian <laughs> from, from, from some people who are Christian and some people who aren't. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of traditions that inform it. But, uh, 
but I don't know how to read the Bible anymore mm. apart from this thing that God is doing, this thing that the Spirit is doing to transform the world that is into the world that ought to be. Mm. So if I could insert the word prayer in the middle of formation, you've done work with new, ma- new monasticism, uh, done the uh, book with Shane, Common Prayer. Um, when you think about, yes, the discipline of being in relationship with um, the black church and learning from the poor, what's this? Talk to me about the spirituality and if you're thinking about the inner formation that is married to the political yeah. boots yeah. on on the, the the ground. Yeah. What's 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 your vision of prayer and and worship and. Uh, the spirituality of this third restoration. Where's that coming from? What's that look like? It's, it's an invitation for us to learn what prayer is. Right? Hmm. Prayer is begging. Uh, most white folks don't know how to beg. Hmm. I knew next to nothing about begging Mm. until they made it illegal to beg in Durham for a minute. And our friends who live on the streets said, they're arresting us for begging. Mm. And I sat down with them over lunch one day and got clear on what was going on. And uh, I said, well, how about this? What if I get some other preachers together and we call the chief of police, and we call the media, and we tell them we're going to beg, where they're arresting you for begging, and let's see will they arrest us. And they said, okay, what you going to do with the money? <laughs> I said, all right, we'll give you the money. But, <laughs> but, but, we, but until I had that experience, I don't think I really knew what it means to beg, what it means to stand vulnerably before God and everybody else, you know, who can see you. Mm. You out there, it was a cold day. You out there, you know, in between cars, zipping up and down, you know, stopping at the stoplight, and uh, just yourself in your flesh. Mm. That's, uh, begging is a space of deep longing and uh, that's why I, th- I think begging, the practice of begging, uh, really makes clear why the Bible talks about fasting and praying. Yeah. Right? This uh, investing our whole body, our whole self, mm-hmm. whole soul into hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is justice. Mm-hmm. And. Um, Wow, I think I think being part of the beloved community and the movement for justice, the third reconstruction in this moment is an opportunity to learn how to pray. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we uh, we do it every day in the Benedictine tradition of fixed hour prayer. We get up, we have morning prayer, mm-hmm. but we, you know, we're we're rooting our own 
hungering and thirsting and longing in the present in this long story of God's people longing for our true home, for that promised land, for the justice and peace of God's reign. We're listening to the prophets. We're remembering the saints. Mm -hmm. We're singing the songs of Zion all uh, as a way of uh, preparing our souls to, you know, be alongside people and to be on the streets and to go to the polls and to go to jail if we have to, Mm -hmm. uh, because Jesus is Lord, Mm -hmm. right? If that means anything, it means our life belongs Mm -hmm. to Jesus. And, um, and Jesus's vision of this world, uh, demands our full allegiance. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's daily prayer. Mm. And you learn you you got to rehearse some good songs at prayer because you never know when you're going to need them, mm-hmm. right? You might need them down at the state house, you might need them down at the jailhouse. Uh, you you're probably not going to have a song book with you when you need them, so it's good to practice every day. What's a what's a feeling? I got a feeling everything's gonna be all right. I got a feeling everything's gonna be all right. Ooh, 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 I got a feeling everything's gonna be all right. Be all right. Be all right. Be all right. That's one you need when you go to jail. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> you know, when they're arresting you, sing that one. <laughs> well, Jonathan Wilson, our growth, thanks for sitting down. Good to be with you. Okay. So yes, amen, everything's going to be all right. When we are overwhelmed by the news, by our neighbors, by our government and politicians, when we have those difficult conversations with our family, friends, and neighbors, yes, even when we march and make our protest and some of us go to jail, yes, do we, do I, Do you know that everything is going to be all right? Do you have this assurance of hope? Before we finish this episode, take some time now and speak to God about your fears about America. Offer Jesus your anger and your resentments. Let's be honest and allow God to give us His assurance for our community, for our polis, for our city. On one hand, it is necessary for many of us to confess that we lose sleep over the kingdoms of this world, having not trusted deeply in the kingdom of God. And on the other hand, do you know the kingdom of God so deeply in your mind, in your affections, 
so deep in the soul center of your being that you are motivated to lovingly and freely serve this world for the sake of righteousness, which is justice. Let's hear and pray Micah 6.8 here. For he has shown you, O humanity, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. The Bishop Callistos Ware of Dioclea encourages us not to just practice prayer or to attend to our prayer lives, but to instead become prayer. Similarly, if we walk humbly with God and love kindness, we do not just practice justice and attend to parts of our lives that require justice. Instead, In Jesus, we become just. We become righteous. And I leave you with these words from a sermon by Dr. Martin Luther King found in Common Prayer, a liturgy for ordinary radicals, a prayer book edited by Jonathan and Shane Claiborne. Dr. King declares, Every now and then I think about my own death and I think about my own funeral. Every now and then I ask myself what it is that I want said. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for someone to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Amen. And thank you, thank you, thank you for joining this part of the journey. This continues to be an incredible honor and privilege to serve you through the invitation. 
And now that the invitation is registered as a 501c3 and we have the Kickstarter campaign up and running, please do support us financially. And please be sure to watch the five-minute video. That will help you get a better understanding of the connections between this podcast, Spiritual Direction, and the prison. And over the years, I want to come out of the prison to tell you more and more stories of how Jesus is fully alive in such a dark place. Because if he's alive in that darkness, maybe he will be vibrantly alive in the midst of my darkness and in yours too, healing and transforming us in love. So please do contribute to the Kickstarter and offer this support soon so that we can develop the right momentum and invite your friends to listen to the podcast and to join this journey with us. So until next time, may you do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Amen.